In today's expert interview, we are joined by Dr. Ilana Rosenberg, a clinical psychologist based in Scarsdale, New York. Dr. Rosenberg supports children, adolescents, and adults through a strengths-based approach that centers empathy and mindfulness to help understand and empower those with anxiety, depression, and more. We'll discuss the importance of managing stress, key indicators parents can look for in their children, and the additional benefits of combining therapeutic support with executive functioning skill building. Hi, I'm Dr. Tony DiGiacomo from Novella Prep, and this is A Novel Take. Dr. Rosenberg, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Thanks for having me. I'd like to start off with a brief overview of your background and ask you what drew you to working in the field of clinical psychology? I have a bachelor's degree from NYU in psychology and then a PhD in clinical psychology from Adelphi University from the Derner Institute. And to me, the idea of being able to work with one person at a time in a really deep way is very meaningful to me. I actually feel like it's like the best job in the world to help people feel better, be happier, live a better life. It's really the ideal job that I could ask for. It's, it's very meaningful. So it'd be interesting to know a little bit more about your approach to working with children and adolescents and how you view the importance of centering a strengths-based empathetic approach with this age group. Part of my goal is to help people feel safe with their emotions and to be with them in a different way and to have an experience of their emotions in their body. And that when you do that, emotions can run through you quickly. They just kind of rise up in 90 seconds and they can leave your body. And then they leave you with a sense of knowing what you need to do to take care of yourself, knowing what action you need to take. And you feel better because you're not fighting with your emotions. They're not knocking at the door trying to get in. You let them in, they run through and they can run out the back door. And then they're not there bothering you the same way. And you can feel lighter, better, clearer, and more a sense of like, this is me. This is me when I feel how I want to feel. One of the things that we've noticed, if I could pick back up on what you're talking about with creating a safe space, is the way in which parents can engage their children and talk about school with children. A lot of it has to do with when they meet with the student and when they're asking for information, how they respond to that information. And I would say a majority of students we come to know, often the parents can't resist the urge to provide guidance and feedback after receiving every data point from children. And then the child ends up, I wouldn't say feeling unsafe, that would be an overcharacterization of it, but always feeling guarded and feeling like if every time I'm vulnerable and share information, I'm going to get a lecture, I'm going to get guidance. It's nine o'clock at night. I know my mom or dad wants to hear information so they can go to sleep and feel better, but it's not making me feel better. So I'm going to shut down and not say a whole lot. And I find that the more we can encourage dialogue without always correcting in that moment or providing guidance in that moment, it can open the door for a healthier dialogue. Curious to know your thoughts on that. I think it's very individual based on that parent and child dynamic and that particular dyad. And I think all parents and kids are different and they have different needs to talk and to share and parents may have different needs to be involved more or less. So I think it's something that each pair can figure out on their own. If I were the parent, I would want to be thinking about like, what's the right time to approach my kid? Is it right when they come home from school, when they're hungry, when they need a snack, and maybe I can sit with them 
during that time, or maybe they just want to focus on eating. Is it better during family dinner time, but then more people are around? Is it better when they're doing their homework, but maybe they want to focus on their homework? It's so individual. And I think that for parents to have a sense that they can trust their kid, that kids want to do the best they can with what they have available, right? They're trying to do their best. And if they're not, there might be some reason there's something getting in the way. And to let their kids know that I want to talk to you about your school and your work and how I can support you on it. And let me know how we can do this together. Do you want me to ask questions because that's helpful to you? Do you want me to kind of just listen and hear it to figure out together how that pair can work as a team for the child's success? I like that notion. I had another follow-up question, this idea of how many thoughts a day we have. And one of the things that we work on with our students is that it is okay to feel stress at times when it is appropriate, is is an appropriate response to what is happening to them. So feeling stress about an upcoming test or feeling stress about SATs or ACTs, but there's a way to I don't know the right word, and you can correct me on this, manage or observe those feelings and understand what's happening and feel what's okay and what's not okay, or how to find balance with all of these feelings that are happening. And related to that, not every thought we hear in our minds needs to be honored. And I find a lot of students think I'm feeling this way, so I have to do this to get rid of those feelings, whatever this may be. Or I'm having these thoughts. I don't want to have those thoughts. I'm going to take the following action. For example, submitting applications before they're done to get rid of the stress of applying versus taking a walk, calming down, then taking a more measured approach. So this idea of, is it filtering thoughts or how do you look at that? Actually, there are studies that show that stress is only really damaging if you think it is, right? Oh, wow. And I think also some amount, like you said, you don't want to get rid of all of the stress or anxiety. Some amount of it is intelligent. Anxiety prevents us from running into the street. Stress helps us study hard for tests. You want to be in control of it rather than it be in control of you. And that's when you want to think about things like ways to soothe it or manage it. Let yourself know, like, I studied hard for that test. I can do it. Or like my whole life doesn't depend on one test or one grade (laughs) to use like strategies to calm yourself down. But I wouldn't try and get rid of it because first of all, you can't. And second of all, you need some of it. Sometimes it's also helpful to relabel as excitement. Like I'm excited. It's easier to go from a high level of activation of stress to a high level of excitement rather than to go from a high level of stress to calming down. So you can be like, I'm really excited to get that test over (laughs) or to show my teacher what I know or to present that report. So I think there's different ways of managing it. I think going for a walk is a really good one because the physical movement helps your body move through it. And I think also just bring yourself back to the present moment. I only have to deal with what's in front of me right now. I don't have to deal with what's five days or five minutes from now. I just have to deal with right now and bring yourself back to the present can help a lot. Just focus on the task you have at hand. When parents are hearing or feeling their child being stressed, and in particular, there are moments that we know are more stressful than others, right? Transitional moments during applying for colleges or high stakes testing, or when starting a new school or a new grade. And we observe a lot of parents out of love and compassion will almost want to take that stress away. They want to do whatever it takes to get rid of that stress for the child. 
But sometimes we feel in our programming anyway, that getting ready for life means knowing how to manage these feelings or knowing how to deal with these feelings and deal with stress, because that's so much of adult life. There's quite a bit of stress. So how can a parent think about building on this notion of stress being intelligence of how to view or help their child view stress? I'll give an example of ways in an educational space that we contend with it. We will focus on making sure the child's getting enough sleep, that they're getting outside for some exercise of some kind, that they're spreading out their studying over time, that we investigate how they're approaching their subject. So there's a lot to routine and habit and protocol that can reduce those feelings. But I'm curious from a more psychologist perspective, how you might guide a parent who is observing stress in their child and maybe resist the urge to always take all of that stress away because it's setting up some kind of dependency on other people to always help you manage your stress. I don't know if that's the right way of phrasing it, but I'm curious about your take. First of all, I think that all those ideas you gave are great ones, like sleep, exercise, spreading your studying it over time. I think that's fantastic. And I think that the message the parent wants to give the kid is like, you can do this. You can do things that are hard. I'm going to help you. I'm going to be there to help you figure out how to not overwhelm yourself. But like you said, stress is a part of life and it's certainly part of adult life. And to figure out, I think you want to think of it kind of like a horse. You want to be leading it, not have it leading you in a certain way. You don't want a wild horse kind of running away with your cart. You want to be them on controlling where it goes. So to think about using stress in a manageable way, sometimes you might need to exercise to help it move through your body. Sometimes you might need to calm yourself down by mindful breathing or noticing your environment. So I think that understanding that is really important that and then knowing really, I think what I said before, like knowing I can do hard things. That's actually like a huge confidence builder is to do something hard and know that you can do it. I think that's a skill that kids build that, you know, at a young age, they take it forward with them in their lives. And then they're not afraid to try that harder class in college or go for the promotion later on or whatever it looks like in your adult life that you can handle things. I love that message. We find in course rigor, because that's really one of the things parents and students have somewhat within control is how hard are the classes I'm going to take. We find that the difficulty is not usually the subject content itself, or even the number of rigorous things available to the student. It's how they're studying and how they're managing their time and their relationship to school. So there seems to be a lot of overlapping themes here. I'd like to shift our focus just for a moment to students who are neurodivergent or students with learning differences, because we work with a, a large percentage of different kinds of students at Novella Prep, some of whom have some kind of documented learning difference. And often through schools, they might get time and a half. They might have some additional resources provided to them, but we still go back to this notion of executive functioning and enrichment being critical to seeing them grow as a learner. But we also see that it needs to often be done in conjunction with some kind of therapeutic support. We talk about students being emotionally ready to hear our instruction or listen to our guidance. And if they're not ready to change their habits and routines or listen to what we're saying, they're not likely to. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that. I don't know what the right term would be, but that emotional availability to be willing to change habits and routines. So this combo of therapy with some of the guidance we might provide, for example. 
there's so many different parts of that. But just to start with having a psychological evaluation or a neuropsych, that can help identify what the problem is. There is one and then figure out what strategies and solutions you can use. So that's when extra time would come in or preferential seating in the classroom. And all that, by the way, is just a way to level the playing field, right? It's not unfair in any way. It's just to kind of get that kid to be where other kids are at in some way. And I think that for a child or a teen to know that there's a glitch in their brain, that they're really smart, but there's a little glitch that many people have, by the way, they're not the only ones, can really take away shame. Because I think a lot of times kids who are maybe have ADHD and are not paying attention or not encoding information can have a lot of shame and knowing like, oh, it's just a glitch in my brain and there are workarounds. You can't ever really fix a glitch, but you can learn strategies to learn how to deal with it. I think that can be very empowering and help take away the shame and build self-esteem because otherwise kids feel like, why am I not getting it? I'm dumb. Why did I not do the homework? I feel bad about it. So understanding what the issue is can go a long way in helping with that because I think often with any kind of learning issue or executive functioning issue, there comes a sense of shame. And I think that also the idea of working together with therapy and an executive functioning coach, the idea of planning to get homework done in advance, not cramming it at the last minute or studying at the last minute, that could take away a tremendous amount of anxiety because there's anxiety involved. You're like, oh my God, it's 12 o'clock the night before my test. And like, I don't know what I'm doing, right? But if you have it structured and set out in advance, then And that takes away that anxiety and you can use that self-talk to say like, oh yeah, I've got it. I can do this, right? I think that's really important to be able to say, I've got it. The other thing is that when you have anxiety, you're not really focused on what's at hand. You might not even be able to encode the information. So that could be due to an attention issue that you're not focused on it, or it could be due to an internal process of I'm focused on what's going on in my internal world. And so I'm not hearing what's going on around me. And so if therapy can help, first of all, reduce shame, as I said, and help with anxiety to regulate anxiety so that you can be present I think that works so well altogether. And same thing with depression. It's like a lack of motivation and it's a rumination in your head and it's low motivation. It's feeling badly about yourself. And you can't focus on studying if you're wrapped up in the world of anxiety and depression. So if therapy can help a kid or a teen feel more present, feel better about themselves, get activated so that they're not in this world of depression, then they'll do better at school because school is like a litmus test in a certain way for how a kid's functioning. Like when they're feeling good, they want to do the best that they can and they'll put that effort in. And so if they're able to attend and feel good about themselves and build their self-esteem at school, it will become like a feedback loop. Feel good about yourself in one way and then you continue to perform. When you treat the underlying anxiety, depression, shame, then that helps a kid be at a more optimal level to focus at school because you can't focus if you're wrapped up in anxiety about whatever it is at that moment. There's also research on the carrot and the stick you can use a stick you know that metaphor with the donkey right you can use a carrot to get him to move forward you can get a stick to hit him to move forward so you can use a stick and it's the same thing you know adults might relate to with dieting like you're like oh i don't fit into these jeans and i really want to and i'm eating too much and i've got to stop and that will work for like a week or two but then it will fall off what you need to do is actually move to what you want to do right like i want to be happy and healthy and fit so i can be around for my family for a long time and actually like studies show that nothing that can be accomplished through harshness can't be done better through firm kindness so if you can have firm kindness with yourself then you can move more into a place of like i want to do this 
and I'll do what it takes to build the habit to get there. From kindness, I'd like to build on that just for a moment. So in speaking with a student recently, I remember talking about accomplishing tasks, a student with ADHD, and it was about accomplishing tasks. And there's a difference, I think, at least in what I observe in having difficulty remaining focused on a task or feeling compelled to get up from your desk after a short duration of time and not just sitting down to do the work at all. And the other is we talk a lot about with students of work before play. So if you have a number of tests, so we work with college students as well. Uh, There's a large population of students in American colleges who are struggling due to executive functioning skills. They somehow made it through high school and middle school, and they find themselves in college, not really sure of what to do. And the writing center is not cutting it. And one of the things that we were saying recently to a student was this idea of make a plan for yourself. I'm going to accomplish X, which I know is achievable in this amount of time before I can do Y. So you get to go out with your friends at night if you finish whatever goal you have in front of you and then hold yourself accountable to that. You shouldn't get that reward if you didn't get done some manageable task. But the key is teaching them what is manageable, what is achievable and what is reasonable in terms of accountability. At least that's how we see it as educators. I'm curious about your take on that, how you can create some kind of framing or scaffolding for tasks you have to complete but also some kind of boundaries. You still get to watch that Netflix show or play that Xbox game or go out with your friends if you didn't do that very bare minimum of tasks you need to do to be responsible for whatever schoolwork is assigned to you. And in this moment, I'm thinking more of slightly older children, later high school and or college. First of all, I think college is a really big shift because you're leaving behind, it's kind of like ending childhood in a way, right? And you're like a mini adult, a really young one now with no experience about the world. And all of a sudden there's no parents there to tell you to do your homework or turn off the lights and go to sleep at a decent time. And you have to develop your own sense of structure and your own internal motivation. And I think that's the challenge and that's a process. And that's something that I think college students learn. I think that's a skill that does develop over time. And I think the the goal really for me would be to find your internal motivation. What are you looking for? What are you working on this degree for? Like I mentioned, when I was in college, I knew I wanted to become a psychologist. So I would skip things so that I could study for my entrance exams or whatever I had to do. Because when you can focus on that motivation, then that's what draws you forward. And I think that, yes, like you said, habit accountability are a really big deal. And that's as a young adult is when you start to learn that for the first time. I don't have a teacher who's going to check my every assignment or make sure I'm handing things in on time or my parents, right? Like I have to learn how to start to do it for myself. So you need to start to learn that accountability. And you also need to have work-life balance. Part of being a college student is like, being free and having fun and independence for the first time in your life and learning how to manage that in a responsible way. I think work-life balance is so important for everyone, for students in high school too, college or adults too. You have to fill up your own bucket with some good times first. I think the idea of making it contingent on getting your work done, I think that's a good one. It might not always be feasible, right? Like, oh, there's a party tonight I want to go to and my, all my friends are going, but I haven't finished this. So what do you do? And then I say that's where flexibility comes in. We'll make a plan. All right, well, I'll get as much done as I can now. And then I'll 
get more done tomorrow. Or it's 12 o'clock at night the night before a test. And I need to get some sleep because sleep is when your hippocampus and your brain consolidates information. And if you don't sleep the night before a test, you're not going to remember it the next day the same way. So it's actually the best thing you can do, right, is to go to sleep. So I think that's important. And I think, like you said, you know, developing certain habits, like what you said about getting the hard work done first is really important because otherwise, first of all, you're dreading it the whole night until you get to it. And second of all, you don't have the same energy when you're tired and when this is your third or fourth assignment, like get the hard thing done first. So developing some habits and strategies like that, I think can be very, very helpful for a young adult who's just emerging as an independent person and learning how to manage their lives. That makes a lot of sense. I think what would be interesting for some of our listeners to hear would be how does a parent going back to the role of the parent in raising their child here, what kind of signs can a parent look for where it might be necessary to seek therapy as a solution for some of the challenges as a learner? So we're talking about observations of either underperformance or stress and anxiety in and around the learning environment where therapy may be helpful. And I won't say as opposed to executive functioning because in tandem, obviously it's beneficial. And we've also found that even high-performing students benefit from executive functioning and enrichment training because they're often inefficient and some of their protocols happen to work for now. But at some point when the rigor gets to a certain level or the amount of volume of work gets to a certain level, the inefficiency leads to not able to process everything all at once and they hit a wall at times. So it's, this isn't just a point I'm asking about underperforming, but your observations of stress and the relationship between learner and school and what a parent can look for as signs. I think all of that is important, right? I mean, just to start with, how do you know if your child is struggling? I would look for signs that maybe they're internally preoccupied. They seem like they're always thinking or ruminating or worrying about something, or they're easily distracted. They look away or you can't get their attention. Messy backpack or messy locker, always losing things, forgetting to bring home their jacket from school, for example, or their notebook, or just knowing that they're not working up to their full potential, right? There's a reason for that. It could be executive functioning. It could be emotional. It's hard to know. Or the Teachers might mention that they're noticing something in class, like this child's not totally with it all the time, what's going on, you know, then you have a conversation to try and get to the bottom of it. And I think that another thing is like socially, right? Learning happens in a social context. You're at school as a social context. And that's a big thing. So how is your child doing with friends? How are they feeling at lunch and recess? Or do they have someone to sit with? Do they have someone to hang out with? I think those are all important cues to what's going on for them internally. And I think also sometimes, like you said, there can be very high achieving people, but they don't always know how to balance their work or they might need a little bit more efficiency. And I think I would just look for signs of stress, signs of anxiety, signs of like, I can't handle this. I'm feeling overwhelmed or withdrawing, going to their room. You can observe on someone's face if they're worrying about something and try and help just bring them back. I think it's so important for parents to be able to tell kids to, first of all, to praise the effort, not the outcome. I just want you to work hard and do your best and learn something when the grades are less important and to help just bring them back to themselves and understand like it will be okay. Right. And actually, I think that's a big part of why I might refer one of the children or teens I work with for executive functioning coaching, because I want to take the stress out of the parent relationship. Right. Yes. Like I 
the parent managing the kid and their workload all the time. There can be so much stress and fighting involved with that. And I want them to just be free to be together and enjoy each other's company without the parents shouldn't have to be the teacher at home. You might just need someone outside the family. Like I said before about therapy, it's just sometimes helpful to have someone outside. It's less stressful, right? There's less history and baggage kind of associated. And then you can have a professional who has their own objective take on like, well, actually, in order to get the results you want, it's better to spread your studying out like this, right? They'll And kids, they don't listen to their parents a lot of time. My kids don't, right? They want to hear from someone else, like another adult. And so to hear from another adult can be really helpful. That's wonderful. I think building on what you said about focusing on input more than the output or the way in which a student might be studying or how they're approaching their studies versus a particular grade, that's something we really focus on as well. We find that, yes, you should have grade goals. It shouldn't be an ambiguous effort. There is measurement in life. There is measurement to determine one's understanding of certain subject matter, but it's not praising or not praising necessarily that goal. It's using it as a data point to infer how the protocols are working. How are your study habits working? And one of the metrics, not the only, but one of the metrics is the grades, but then focusing on the routine is everything. And we find with students who join our program early on, parents are looking for immediate signs of change. And one of the things we try to tell them is your child's been studying this way probably for 10 or 15 years. There are a lot of habits and routines to unpack. They might not have been coming home, grabbing a snack, and then hitting their homework before they played. They might have a long series of routines of doing things a certain way, or they have a phone next to them while they're studying and they're used to doing that. Really tough one, yeah. It's a tough one. So there are a lot of habits and routines that have crept into our lives that are not always optimal. So we tell increasingly families that there's a bit of a curved approach to like what observations you can see in changes. In the beginning, it's laying out these foundational principles. It might take two months just to teach foundational principles. But month three and month four, you start to see the adoption of or the integration of some of these things into their schooling. Then you start to see the grades following. It takes time, but it's a permanent change. They at least have permanently that ability now to draw from. They may choose not to. They might relapse a bit. But now they have these fundamentals that they can build off of. I'm curious to know, I don't know rate of change. That might be too much of a physics way of looking at human brains. But when we think about what parents can look for in signs that things are heading in a direction that is more balanced and more healthy, more optimal for a learner, how long sometimes might it take for the human brain to become plastic and adaptable to some of these inputs and become different in a positive way? There's neuroplasticity, right? So you can change your brain until the day you die. How long it takes to develop a new habit? I think there's various research on that. I've heard four days, I've heard 21 days, but I don't think any of that is really true. I think it's just anything that you do on a consistent basis the first time you're creating a new neural pathway in your brain, it's like whacking weeds through the jungle with a machete. It's arduous. But the more you travel down that neural pathway, the easier it becomes to do that. So your first thought might always be, yeah, I'm going to drop my backpack and play video games. But what's your second thought, right? What do you do with that? And how fast do you move from that way of being to your new way of being? And that's just a matter of practice. And the more you practice it, the better you become at it. What you were saying before about finding the work-life balance and grades, it's really important, like I said, just I want to reiterate, like to have parents praise the effort, not the outcome, because 
Because you want to teach your kids, they're learning about something interesting, right? They're learning about the world and how to be in the world. And these are, this is skills and information they will have in their lives. And even if they say, well, I don't need geometry in my life. I'm not going to be a math teacher. It's still teaching you how to think and it's expanding your brain in a different way. And it's expanding your capacity to learn. And I would like to see parents focusing on that, like finding your internal motivation for it. Grades are important, but your internal motivation is really what's going to make you try and go that mile to get to where you want to go. Love that idea. And, and this idea of also subjects that are relevant or not relevant. One of the things that we talk with our students about is being comfortable with being uncomfortable. There might be subjects or content areas that are not as interesting or not appealing, or you're not seeing the connection between that and whatever future you're imagining. But there are aspects to life, which requires that we learn how to, in some cases, tolerate things. In other cases, we pick up skills and knowledge along the way that might be relevant in ways we can only appreciate and understand later at certain moments. But praising the effort, the continued and consistent effort toward doing their job, which is to be a learner in that moment is really more important than necessarily only that performance, the performance on that test. Yeah, to learn something. Yeah. So I also wanted to address your question that you've noticed students becoming increasingly stressed and anxious. I think the best advice I can give parents and kids, teens is to just slow down, try and like slow yourself down. Anxiety makes you move really fast. So slow yourself down and pay attention to your own needs. Like what's going on for me at this moment. And then you have a little bit of space between you and what's ever going on. That's what I'm always trying to work with people on finding space, space between you and the anxiety, space between you and your depression, space between you and whatever's kind of taking over you that's not quite you or not how you want to feel. And to offer yourself self-compassion and to offer yourself a sense of like, I can make mistakes and that's okay. And also a good way of getting there is to just when you're feeling really anxious, let's say about that upcoming task, like slow down your breathing. And as long as you double the exhale from the inhale, that will help. So in for four and out for eight, it's really simple and really effective, or just feel your feet touching the floor. Or one of my favorite ones is just, it's called the, I call it the five, four, three, two, one trick, which is you name five things that you can see, four things that you can touch, three things you can hear, two things that you can smell, and one thing that you can taste, right? And that brings you right back to your senses. So when you're kind of feeling like overwhelmed and anxious, it lowers you down. And like I said before, also, like I want, I don't want people to try and get rid of their anxiety because they can and it won't work. But labeling it goes a long way in giving you space from it, right? Just labeling yes. anxiety actually regulates anxiety. So I would label what's going on for me right now and accept it. It's okay to have it. It's okay to have anxiety. It's part of life. It's not going to hurt you. And when you're okay with it and not trying to get rid of it, then you feel more at ease in yourself because you're not fighting with yourself internally. So I know there's all this stuff like stress busting tips or whatever. And I would say more just like, you know, accept it. And that's what the breathing or the other techniques are about. But just accepting that it's there will go a long way in regulating it. That's very powerful. I've heard it described also as when you've identified or can label something, it dissolves its power over you in many ways. Right. And you realize that you're not in those moments actively solving any problems. You're in this loop of indulgence, almost like the cycle of thinking about something, but you're not actually working toward a solution. And once you can realize that, oh, I'm stuck in this loop, then perhaps you can break free from it. Well, actually what happens is you go from the amygdala, which is a fear center of your brain, 
prefrontal cortex where you can actually do something with it. And I always think of it as popping a soap bubble. You touch it and it pops. So the minute you know you're thinking and you label it as anxiety, it pops. It doesn't have the same strength over you. I love that. I think we'll definitely want to do a follow-up series talking more about brain science because a lot of what we've been studying in the education space as amateurs in brain science, but as educators seeking to understand the minds of our learners, being able to build positive and constructive memories they can draw from during moments of crisis in particular, so they can stay focused when they want to and not be when they're not, but perhaps that could be a topic for another day. So before we go, where can people learn more about how to get in touch with you or learn more about you? I have a website. It's www.alanarosenberg.com. So then I, I-L-A-N-A-R-O-S-E-N-B-E-R-G. And they can also email me at alana at alanarosenberg.com or call me at 917-620-8749. That's wonderful. Thank you, Dr. Rosenberg, for being with us today. We will post that information on our website as well. And thank you for all that you've shared with us and our listeners. Thank you so much. It was fun. That's all for this episode of A Novel Take. Thanks for listening. Remember to subscribe for more discussions on the latest education headlines, key topics, and expert interviews. As always, you can learn more about us at novellaprep.com and find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at novellaprep. I'm Dr. Tony DiGiacomo. Bye for now.